You're listening to The Film File, the film show for film geeks and by film geeks. And in case of danger, always run towards it because that's what films have taught us. It's true, though. It's true, isn't it? Okay. If there's a danger in a film, the hero always runs towards it. That's yeah. one of the uh, first things I ever remembered, the sort of trope that I picked up as a kid. Hello, I'm Lee Ford. And I'm Andy Meakin. I'm not going to ask you how you are, <laughs> <laughs> because I know you're not feeling your best, but you are going to be very plucky and give the best possible performance for this show that you can do. And I'm just yeah. going to say, I'm knackered. But... It'll be a struggle, because I am feeling very peaky. And um, I mean, I've got a, I'm looking at my camera image at the moment and seeing I've got a slight yellowish tint. Yeah, so, I thought uh, it was an, I thought it was the image. I thought you got some sort of AI look on it to make it look sort of like uh, uh, some sort of sepia. Yep. So Andy isn't well at oh. all. I'm, I'm going to soldier on just for oh, dedication. Dedication. Because we love this show so much that we have to do it. I'm knackered because uh, I went to a gig last night rather than performed one. I was at the uh, Manchester Arena for the um, Hollywood Vampires gig. Uh, there was a bit of an after show, only a little bit of an after show. I got to meet a very cool character, which will be revealed in uh, my neat thing for this week. But I'm going to bring something up that uh, I'm surprised that we haven't talked about, but we haven't mentioned Secret Invasion on Disney+. Plus. Yeah, I think it's because normally we're quite excited about these shows. And this so far just isn't landing for me. You see, it's landing for me in a very subtle way, which sort of reminds me of the kind of BBC spy thriller that I grew mm. up on. Things like uh, Smiley's People. Yeah. Things like Edge of Darkness, which sort of edged their way, pun intended, by the way, which sort of edged their way very slowly with the plot and were little reveals rather than huge reveals and the look of the show this the the the, the, the grading and and the art design on the show again has that sort of bbc spy quality this is not by any stretch of the uh, the imagination a superhero show no. but it is for me uh, an absolute classic uh, spy espionage series um i think it will hit its stride by three and four, because I think that's what all series, especially Marvel series, have a tendency to do. But I'm, I'm intrigued by it, but I have seen that it's the lowest rated show out of all the Marvel shows. And I just think it doesn't feel like a particularly a, a Marvel show. Yeah. And um, to say something I remember saying about Eternals, you kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't. People always want something different. You try something different. People go, yeah. Oh, it's, but it's not got this in it, and it's not got that in it. But I'm, I, I'm in. I'm, I, I kind of in. I'm in the same way as I was with Andor, for instance. Yeah. That it took you two or three episodes after the initial episode one to sort of figure out what kind of a show it is, and um, and you know how much I end up raving about Andor, At which I've still not got round to. Yeah, and I and I highly time. insist that you should. Um, so, so yeah, I, I just noticed that we we'd not mentioned it, but that's that's my ten cents worth. Um, also on Disney Plus, so something that we've not really mentioned on the show because I know what your opinion is of the movie, and one of these days we will deep dive that movie uh, just to just to share with the world why you don't like the full Monty. 
the episodes aren't completely landing with me, but I got to the fifth episode and that suddenly became something more than what the rest of the series was. It's uh, the, the, the episode Rehoming, episode five, which tackles immigration, refugee crisis, xenophobic ignorance, as well as like, you know, finding love in a strange place. And it was such a, a well thought through and heartwarming kind of episode. And that's one of the few I've seen, actually, Andy. And I thought I must admit I, I, I like that one a lot. I thought that was that was really good. That episode. It's been a mixed bag. Um, it, it has, yeah. Good, it's... good killer lines out of it. Yeah. Doesn't quite feel like it knows where what it wants to do and where it wants to go. It wants to be comedy, which is fine. Uh, wants to be uh, a, a soapbox, which again is is fine and does that very well. I I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm I'm not a huge fan of the film. As, as I've said for many reasons. But yeah, it just feels a little bit indifferent. It doesn't feel yeah. like it knows where it wants, what kind of a show it wants to be. Uh, and that's going to be something, again, I'm going to bring up in our reviews later about taking its time to try to figure out what kind of a show it, it, it ultimately is, is trying to be with it. Yeah. But, you know, it's, and you can't watch it and live in Sheffield without going, oh, I know where that is. <laughs> oh, I've walked down that street. There was a couple of shots that we were in town last year while they were filming, and we were—I think—we're were in the background walking past. Um, so yeah, that's always interesting to see when you when your home, um, your, your home city is is being portrayed in a very it's a very sunny yes. version of Sheffield. Yeah, it's it's never looked like that in its whole life. <laughs> uh, um, deep dive update again. So uh, you remember all those months ago when we covered Boondock Saints? Well, now. Our listeners out there can treat themselves. Is that the right word for Boondock Saints? Uh, uh, they can. They can uh, persist they can with experience. Experience, better word. Boondock Saints on Amazon Prime now. Uh, it dropped on there this past week. So if you must, it's out there, and you don't have to pay for it. <laughs> I, I, I must be honest. Try and find the documentary about the making of Boondock Saints because it's much better than the film itself. Uh, one thing you did treat me to this week, uh, oh. and that was the trailer for Dune 2 in all of its big screen glory, rather than just watching it on um, YouTube. And yes. boy, does it look great. It looks amazing, doesn't it? It yeah, just looks... I mean, and according to the latest reports, it's coming in at about three hours long. That's, that's something to look forward to later in the year. Uh, talking of looking forward to, let's look forward now to our responses for our social challenge. So uh, our social challenge last week was films that you love, you're passionate about, that other people, the, the, the general population has written off as being a disaster or a terrible film or the reviews have been shocking, but you are that, that cheerleader for that particular film. And one thing I'm gonna point out uh, from our previous question, which was about endings, and this struck struck me as it was uh, the, the kiddo was playing uh, playing the movie. The ending of Amazing Spider-Man Two. Mm. What a great ending! That last scene with yeah. the Rhino and, uh, and and Spider-Man. One of the great superhero endings. And because there's not much love for that particular film, uh, it gets overlooked as being an absolutely fantastic ending. And everything that about Spidey is in that that one scene. Anyway. Yeah. So it kind of combines the two. So uh, films that, that you love that everybody else hates. My choice was Hudson Hawk. Nobody loved Hudson Hawk. I thought it was great. There's a lot wrong with it. Oh, so much wrong with it. 
So for instance, Sandra Bernard or Andy McDowell doing a dolphin impression, but <laughs> I, it's, it's a film that I really like. I really like Hudson Hawk. It's, it's a crazy film. Doesn't know what it wants to be. And I, I, I get it. Anyway, so that's mine. Came out in 1991, Hudson Hawk. Everybody hated it. I loved it. Right. Uh, well, we had a good scattering of responses uh, this week. Um, Carl Hodkin, for me, it's the one and only Freddy Got Fingered. Oh, terrible film. Absolutely terrible film. Absolutely terrible. Um, so you're very brave for owning up to that one, Carl. But thank you for replying. Um, over on Facebook, Owen Cooper, probably Tenet. Featuring the greatest live action Leon S. Kennedy we're ever going to get. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, yeah, Tenet wasn't very well received. We kind of enjoyed it here on the show. Yeah, we had a lot of problems with it. We had a lot of problems. Um, Lindsay's story now. <laughs> Lindsay had a very interesting um, suggestion here. I mean, started off with really like butterfly effect but no one else seems to. And yeah, I, I remember like everyone kind of latched onto that when it came out, but it's one of them that everyone's retroactively hating. Mm. Um, I don't think it's a bad film. No, no, I don't think it's, um, I don't think it deserves any hate. But then she followed that with, and this is a bad one, and I know I'm going to get slated, so apologies in advance, but Jack and Jill, just for the Alpacino yeah. bits, the Johnny Depp cameo, sorry, okay. not sorry. So I, I replied to say that's a brave choice and then threatened to dock her team a few points on the next film quiz at the cinema because <laughs> she wanted to make it a quiz, people. She then tried to retract her statement and throw in Dark Shadows instead. Oh, I don't mind Dark Shadows. I, I think for what it is, I think it, it does pretty good. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm not retracting her previous suggestion, but Dark Shadows is a great choice. Uh, I think a lot of people who didn't, didn't like Dark Shadows don't realise it's actually based on quite a quite a shonky tv series so it, it's supposed to come across as corny cheesy and slightly not quite right i saw i had a friend who uh, in the states i went over to stay with years and years back who was a massive dark shadows tv series fan and he got videotapes and and for those who don't know what dark shadows was it was an afternoon uh, soap opera except it was a gothic horror so it was it was shot live so it's very theatrical the effects work is, is appalling and sometimes actors would forget their lines but it was it was such an intriguing show and uh, and the film sort of picks up on that um that soap opera quality it's like making a big screen movie version of crossroads for instance that's the sort of quality that dark shadows was apart yeah. from they made two movies and house of dark shadows really worth seeing also on facebook lee christopher leary a good portion of Nick Cage's back catalogue. And <laughs> I'm completely not surprised by that. This guy loves Nicolas Cage films, regardless of which ones. Me Mumsy, Patricia Meakin, Waterworld, and any with Cliff in them. I, I ignored the Cliff mention. I'm, I'm not going not gonna to talk about Cliff Richard films. But Waterworld, I'm there for that. I yeah, I've, I've had a good time with Waterworld. Um, I, I'm going to defend one Cliff Richard film, though. Go on, then. Expresso Bongo one of the best films about the music industry that you'll ever see okay um it's not getting added on a deep dive list i'll just tell you that you, right now <laughs> you know I, I think i've told you this and well i've told you this because I, I plan to share it with you i have inherited a, a thousand odd dvds and blu-rays and amongst those is espresso bongo so you never know it's still not getting added onto the deep dive list <laughs> uh stephen young for me, it's more of an understated classic, the first never-ending story. I love the cheesy 80s theme by Lamal 
and it seems to be a bit forgotten. And yeah, I th- I, this is a film that is quite well beloved by people of a certain generation, yeah. but it has kind of vanished into obscurity. I know we're getting the new retelling of it for a series. Is it Netflix or Amazon who are doing it? I can't be quite sure. But this, the original film kind of just fell by the wayside. I think it got it got forgotten whilst ones like of that similar era and similar kind of feel like Labyrinth gained prominence. But never ended story. It's got charm. It's got uh, charm. Uh, to be honest, having rewatched Labyrinth recently, it, it might be not as great as you as you want to remember it as. Yeah, it's, it's one that I'm not planning to go back to. Over on Mastodon, Stagger Lee 42, The Way of the Gun, the Christopher McQuarrie film. I like that film. Sank Without a Trace on release. Yeah. Um, I've, I've not seen it, but I've added it onto my list to check out. No, I like that film. It's it's not perfect. Uh, heavily, not to say heavily influenced, but there's a certain nod to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, as the characters are called Parker and Longbar. But yeah, I've got I've got some love for it. It's it's, it's not a, a great movie, but it's it's an interesting film. Salty Red Popcorn. I don't love love it, but I've always had a soft spot for Book of Shadows, Blair Witch too. I'd rather watch that a dozen times than watch a dull retread of the brilliant Blair Witch project, which everyone got eventually with the tiresome jump scare fest Blair Witch. So I'm of the I'm of the opposite opinion. I quite liked the uh, tiresome jump scare fest Blair Witch, um, which was retreading the old ground because. Book of Shadows was a completely different film tagged onto uh, Blair Witch 2. But you know what? He's got a soft spot for it. I I, I tried revisiting Blair, um, Book of Shadows and I wasn't feeling it at all. Next one, Nick Fredrickson. I completely agree with this one. Must be Sahara, the 2005 film. Love it to bits. One year, I actually ended up watching it more than once a month, he says. And uh, I can kind of see that. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed that when it came out. Uh, UK film nerd on Mastodon. Maybe these aren't hated as such, but I really enjoy them. Star Wars Solo, Waterworld. I like Solo, like Waterworld. And Enchanted, the Brendan Fraser film. Do you think he's thinking Bedazzled? Yes. <laughs> I, th- I think it might be Bedazzled because I, that's the... Remake of the Dudley Moore film. Yeah, had Elizabeth Hurley in it. That's it. I mean... I've got a thing for that film, and that thing is Elizabeth Hurley. It, it pales by comparison to the Dudley Moore version and the Peter Cook version, but it, it's not a bad film. It's not a bad film in with any stretch of the imagination. It's uh, it, it has some charm to it, other than Elizabeth Hurley. Uh, Mev's Matt's provided, as usual, a list. They're not all hated, but they're underrated. Mother, The Tomorrow War, Apostle, The Discovery, all of the Mortal Kombat films, Luckiest Girl Alive. Under the Silver Lake, The Perfection, Shimmer Lake, Nerve, Raw Deal, The Cloverfield Paradox, Polar, the 2018 Tomb Raider film, Dude, Under Siege 2, Predators, Blonde, Velvet Buzzsaw, The Space Between Us, Voyagers, The Craft Legacy, and Black Christmas from 2019. And from that list, there's a good number of the ones that I've seen that I kind of agree with. So now the ones that I've not seen on that list, I've added onto my watch list, which is getting bigger and bigger every week. Because it just it does appear that me and Mevs are on the same wavelength on quite a few things here. I'm liking that list a lot. There's some some really left of centre choices on that one, and yeah, good choices. And some of those I haven't seen. Uh, another film that I like that the critics hated, uh, Tomorrowland, Brad yep. Bird, uh, George Clooney film. Um, yeah. I've got a, a real soft spot for that. Yes, it's a little bit all over the place. It does have an absolute sense of of. It's charming and wonder to it. Uh, one which 
echoes what you said earlier. Lease from Mastodon, Hudson Hawk. Yay. So it's definitely going to get put on the deep dive list at some point. Um, Aussie at Mastodon World also provided a list. Not all of these are hated, but I'm absolutely higher on them than most. Ain't Then Bodies Saints, Antiviral, The Assassin from 2015, Chronicles of Riddick, The Congress, Ennismen, God's Country, Knock at the Cabin, Lucky, Magic Mike's Last Dance, Mainstream, The Man Who Killed Hitler and Then the Bigfoot, Men from 2022, Only God Forgives, This Party's Just Beginning, We're All Going to the World's Fair, and Zoom from 2015. And again, the ones that I've seen there, yeah, I can kind of, I've kind of got some enjoyment for myself. So again, the ones that I've not seen, my ex, my watch list is just growing by the minute. And then the final one from Mastodon was George Stoko, who said the Hellboy remake of recent years thought it was actually better than the original. Oh, David Harbour's portrayal had an angsty element that Ron Perlman's didn't. I like that. Yeah, agree with that bit. Fun, but sort of Hannibal from the A-Team in Horns. In Christian theology, demons are supposed to have fallen, right? Patchy film, but I read somewhere that it was butchered at the behest of the producers. Yeah, what we need to know that story. And yeah, I can kind of see. I mean, I wanted to like that Hellboy film so much, and there's a lot of things in it that I do like. Harbour being the main positive, but you can smell the studio interference all the way through it. That's what made it fall apart and not quite gel for me. Some great choices, and there's also a, a small scattering over on Twitter with Harvey Morton initially trying to wind me up by saying Paul Blart, Mall Cop. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but then following it with Cherry, Jason Bourne, King Arthur, Legend of the Sword, Super 8, and Grown Ups. Hey, I'm, all, I'm all for Super 8, by the way. Oh, Super 8 is a marvellous film. Yeah, beautiful, all beautiful for it. Film. And Stevie Dan, 1969, gave us Moonfall, 2012, and The Meg. He appreciates silly disaster movies. I watched with the child because, as I've just just said, inherited ten thousand uh, Blu-rays thereabouts. Uh, Twenty twelve, just this last week, and I enjoyed it much more than I did when I saw it the first time. With its plane taking off from a crumbling runway three times. Yes. <laughs> uh, when it got to the second time, I thought that's a bit audacious. I, I don't remember that in the cinema because I think it just sort of washed over me. But watching it on Blu-ray, going, haven't, haven't we just seen this scene? Oh, oh, here it comes again, just in case um, uh, you forgot about it. There it goes, yeah. As I said last week, my immediate answer is Wild Wild West. I've got a lot lot of love for that film. But um, also, I want to throw in Speed Racer, which in recent years, I've discovered there's a small group of us online who have a load of love for Speed Racer. I loved it right from that first time of watching it on the big screen. And I will still love it today. Andy, I may have mentioned uh, once or twice, I've just inherited 10,000 Blu-rays <laughs> in which Speed Racer was one of those films. And this week, my Blu-ray player died. So I went out and I bought myself a 4K uh, Blu-ray player. It's just crazy, I know. <laughs> and the film that I tested on it was, in fact, Speed Racer. Speed Racer. Because it just looks so good. It's vibrant. Yeah. It's the perfect film to do a 4K upscale on because it just leaps out of the screen. Marvellous. Hey, there were some great answers this week. Fantastic. So um, when we started this section today, I mentioned final scene of Amazing Spider-Man 2, which got me thinking. So we talked about endings, films that have got great openings, films that have blown you away within that first 10 minutes. So clearly Jaws has got one of the best opening scenes ever. Uh, everybody remembers the opening to Star Wars. 
Jurassic Park. Serenity. The Last Boy Scout, which was the reason the script got sold, was that, that opening mm. section. So yes, great opening sequences to a film. Um, the film may go downhill after that, but they've caught your attention in that first five, 10 minutes. Tell us which films instantly caught your attention. You can do that by reaching us across all of the socials. Are we on threads yet, Andy? Yes. So you can catch us on all the socials, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Mastodon, and now we're on threads as well. Just search for Film File UK, and there we are. The question of the week will go out on all those channels. You can reply to us in any of those means. You can also reply to the question of the week via Spotify itself in the description for the show. The question will be down there. Feel free to answer. Or you can email us in and answer podcast at filmfile.uk. Awesome. Look forward, as ever, to reading your responses and, and good work this week, guys. Some really challenging answers. Uh, can't wait to see what films you think blew you away in the first five or ten minutes. All right. So we've got a show to be getting on with because Andy's falling apart as we speak. <laughs> and we've got to try and make it to the end. So what have we got for you on our 174th episode? Yeah, we've been around for 174 episodes. And we're still going strong. Well, one of us is. <laughs> and I think I know who isn't. What have we got on this week's show? We've got a deep dive into James Mangold's Logan. We have reviews of... Elemental, that landed finally in the UK this week. Insidious, The Red Door. And The Outlaws, that landed on Netflix this past week. So much good stuff. But we're going to start all that off with the box office. And, of course, the news. So on this precarious roller coaster we call the box office, has Indiana Jones still managed to bullwhip his place to the first position, or is he sinking into Flashville? So in the US, Indiana Jones drops from the top spot, making room for Insidious the Red Door, which opened with 33 million this weekend. Indy taking 27 million to add on to its total. Sound of Freedom is in third place with 19.7 million. Elementals still holding over reasonably in the US, taking another 10 million. And Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse still holding in strong in the top five, another 8 million added to its total. Here in the UK, Indiana Jones kept the top spot for a second week, only took 3 million this weekend, however. Elemental has a reasonably soft opening with 2.9 million. Insidious the Red Door takes 2.3 million to go into third place. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse took another 964,000. And The Little Mermaids took another 490,000 to add on to it, its total. Indiana Jones currently worldwide is only on 249 million. And the drop-off has been quite high between week one and two. It's going to struggle to break even. Insidious the Red Door has taken 64 million worldwide on a very low-budget horror. That's already gone into profit. And Elemental still creeping in those figures. It's up to 253 million. It's probably still going to struggle to completely break even. But now it's had the international rollout, we might start to see it recoup some of its losses from early weeks. So it, it kind of goes along with what we've been talking about, Andy, about uh, the way that stuff that's tried and tested isn't isn't necessarily landing. Mm. We always had our doubts about Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Uh, we kind of got proved right. Legacy projects, unless it, it appears to be Top Gun Maverick, uh, just aren't making the grade. And, and The Flash, I gather, had made its budget back in sort of four weeks, which is, which is pretty poor. Yeah. It's particularly worrying for 
the films that are costing over 200 million to make yeah. because the signs are that if you want to be profitable from going forwards you need to keep your budget below 150 million okay so we do know that we've got um mission impossible to land this week so we might be eating our own tape by by the end of the week yeah mission impossible should be tracking well it's got great word of mouth it's eyeing up a strong opening weekend and it's already eyeing up a second weekend of approximately 35 million and then we've got barbie which is tracking well for 80 to 100 million opener in the us and Oppenheimer placed for a 40 to 50 million but they're going to be competing for screen space. So whilst yeah. the tracking data is saying this is what they predicted, they might not have the seating capacity to be able to make what the predictions are saying. We'll see in the coming weeks, but it is, we're, we're getting to the end of this crowded summertime marketplace before August hits us with hardly anything coming out with a major, major notice. It makes you wonder whether or not they should have just held off a few of these films for the band. Yeah. Uh, I, I kind of think that we can breathe a bit of a sigh of relief because uh, it, it's not why we do a film podcast when we love films so much to be talking about films that have been a huge disappointment, especially films that we've kind of had a kick out of. Mm. Yes, both films have, have got lots and lots of issues. Some of them we talked about and, and some of them you will have seen for yourself if you've actually been to see them. And you should, but yeah, it's, 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 we didn't walk out of either film and, and said, we've not had a great time out of this no. or a good time. At least we weren't not entertained. Yes. We saw the problems they had, but, um, yeah, interesting, um, disappointing. I'm, I'm actually more disappointed for Indiana Jones than I am for the flash. Yeah. It, especially, you know, given that this is the send off that Indiana Jones deserved, it's a shame that it's not been not being watched whether this is going to be one of them that once it comes onto home release people suddenly latch onto it and realize what they've missed albeit too late remains to be seen but yeah strange times we've got for films at the cinema like i've said the other week is we're still seeing footfall at our cinema we're still seeing admits it's just spread over too many films there's no one film that's pulling in all the box office at the moment it's just spread across four or five films that Ones like uh, Spider-Verse just keep performing and keep performing. But that's Spider-Verse is still taking away the box office money from other films that are being released yeah. too close to it. It's not, it's not all healthy over on streaming either, where this whole wave of certain streamers removing content has now got to ridiculous proportions. Okay. We've spoken in the past few months about how Paramount Plus have dropped recent shows such as Rise of the Pink Ladies, which is no longer on their service, and how Disney had chopped a load of their stuff well disney have just completely wiped the disney plus original feature crater which only arrived may the 12th i believe it came out oh wow and so it was removed on june the 30th seven weeks after its debut it's not available anywhere else and crater is one of them that i've had on a potential reviews list for a while because i actually got to see it about a month and a half ago and thought if we if we have a gap one week I'll talk about this, but now I can't because it's it, it's not <laughs> it's available gone. to watch anywhere. Um, it's the film that starred McKenna Grace, Isaiah Russell Bailey, and Scott Kid Coody Mascudi, following friends from a mining colony on the moon who go searching for a crater because it meant something to someone's dad who's passed away, and he just, it's the one last wish that he had: go and find this crater. And they uncover a lot of strange secrets. It was a charming little film. It was very much Goonies in space, right? Um, and McKenna Grace was fantastic in it, but 
Disney are still pulling things off their service. So if you want to, if you want to make sure that you want to see the films that you love and, and repeatedly see the films that you love, then we've always, we've always said the way to do it is to have a physical copy because yeah. it doesn't matter that it's out there on Netflix, Paramount, Prime, Disney. It's not always going to be there forever. No. It, and, and maybe we might get the resurgence in, in owning a piece of, uh, of your film in the same way that, that vinyls had a resurgence. Because if, if the internet went down tomorrow, I'm going to lose thousands of thousands of pieces of music. Wes Anderson. So with Asteroid City still doing okay in the UK box office, and the Netflix short anthology, The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar, due to come to Netflix later this year, all attention is now on Wes Anderson's next feature, which is going to be an espionage thriller with Benicio Del Toro in the lead role. Okay, interested. Um, Anderson has explained that the film will focus on father-daughter relationship and will be dark in tone with a linear timeline, which is very rare for Anderson to stick to a linear timeline. He likes to play back and forth and keep you a bit on edge. In addition, Del Toro will be in every shot of the movie. You'll know that Del Toro worked with Anderson previously on French Dispatch. However, Anderson did talk about the dark tone that has been mentioned and said, my intention was to make it a particularly dark film, but while working on it, I'm heading in another direction. And it will probably okay. be less dark than expected. It will be a lot more about family, even more so than Asteroid City. So he has this idea that he wants to do a dark espionage thriller and then just goes, but I'm going to Wes Anderson it and I'm just going to make it light and cheerful at the same time. And I'm all there for it. <laughs> <laughs> because it, it's Wes Anderson. Yes, I, I, I'd love to see him tackle a horror. I would love to see Wes Anderson do a horror. So we've only got a week or so before Oppenheimer opens, but I believe you have some news on that. Yes, uh, we know that Nolan likes to avoid using CG wherever he can. He likes to practically do as much as he can. Nolan, speaking with Collider this week about his new film's focus on practicality, says that the work contains zero CG shots, which means that every bomb that goes off in that film, they worked out a practical way of representing an atomic device going off. Um, it was previously reported that Nolan and the production team recreated the Trinity test itself, the first ever test explosion of the nuclear bomb in New Mexico in 1945, entirely without CGI. That the rest of the film seems to contain none or next to none seems almost startling. But that will explain how they managed to keep the budget under a tight 100 million. I'm all for practical effects, uh, because practical effects are, are kind of, for me at least, uh, timeless. I mean, I would Ooh. rather see a beautiful model shot than I would uh, a, a CG creation of, of a city, for instance. I, I love model shots. And that takes me back to uh, things like Thunderbirds and Captain Scarlet and all those where uh, my love of, of, of practical explosions and models is, comes from that. Now, uh, that's not to decry um, CGI effects because some CGI is just absolutely awe-inspiring, but there is something about a, a good model shot. The way that, that you know the original Star Wars movies looked were just amazing uh, in a way that model shots have a weight to them in the way that, that CGI will never have, or, or at least not for now. Yeah. Um, and Barbie has been banned in Vietnam. Yes, I, um, I heard that. And all over a map that you can see in the trailer. And this map is a crayon-drawn, hand-drawn child's map representation of the world. So none of it is authentic or close to detail. But apparently there's a nine-dash line segment on the map that Vietnam say are meant to indicate China's territorial claims in the South China Sea. 
I've seen this, the images of this map. Those nine dash lines are nothing. <laughs> they are just random lines. Vietnam disputes the claims on the South China Sea and say that they violate the sovereignty of their country. And they post a notice confirming that Barbie was under review with one senator, senator asking them to block the movie over its map. And Warner Brothers Film Group have told Variety that the map found in the film is not meant to represent any sort of real world scenario. Seriously, go online and search for the image of this map and see how ridiculous these claims are because (laughs) it's absolutely no relevance to what the Earth looks like. The map in Barbie land is childlike. It's a crayon drawing. The doodles depict Barbie's make-believe journey from Barbie land to the real world. It was not intended to make any kind of statement. The fact that films are getting banned for a cartoony drawing is bewildering. But everywhere else in the world, we'll still get to see it on July the 21st anyway. Um, I'm going to hopefully bring a little bit of light into your life. We know that in the animated TV series, uh, Marvel TV series, What If, Jeffrey Wright played the Watcher. Well, we may be just one step closer to actually having a live-action version of Uetu, the real name of the Watcher, Um, coming up very close. Rumour has it that Wright will make his return as the Watcher later this year. It won't be in What If Season 2, because that's not expected to land on Disney Plus until 2024. And this will mark his first appearance out of that series and suggest there are serious multiversal shenanigans afoot. Uh, Rumours are uh, abound, but my money is on Loki Season 2. Mm. Loki season two or potentially Deadpool three with all the cameos that are getting announced on that one. Yeah. So are you going to tell us about some of the cameos which have been announced in Deadpool three? The biggest ones that we've heard of over the past week, there was rumors that Ben Affleck is going to be popping up as the multiverse, a multiversal version of Daredevil, the character that he played way back in 2003. And Jennifer Garner has now been pretty much confirmed as appearing as Elektra the role that she played in that 2003 Daredevil film and also her 2005 outing. Owen Wilson has been spotted around set, suggesting that his Loki character of Mobius is going to appear. And there's rumours that Channing Tatum will also pop up as Gambit. They are currently just that, rumours, but it does sound very like anyone who's seen Channing Tatum pop up in cameos in multiple films over the past few years knows that Channing Tatum will be down with that. And it does sound like, from everything that we're hearing about the Deadpool three film it is a multiversal joke film it could be the film to end multiversal films because he's going to be taking the mickey out of going through the x universe by the looks of it and getting all those casting decisions that didn't quite work and uh representing them for a bit of fun deadpool's no stranger to cameos look at the whole x-force sequence in deadpool 2 yeah well they had the uh, they had the x-men pop up didn't they for one shot more when we know it but we have seen some shots from set of Ryan Reynolds in Deadpool costume, and it got me excited. So uh, I'm so looking forward to Deadpool 3. And, and I don't know if you caught this, but apparently, and it, it was mentioned at the end of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, which is out on VOD this week, is that, that Chris Pratt is moving forward in returning as the legendary Star-Lord in a film to be titled The Legendary Star-Lord. We know nothing more than that. Clearly, James Gunn, isn't going to be involved but you know what who knows who knows they said it would never happen but it is happening beetlejuice 2 and talking of set photos we got the first look at scream and wednesday star jenny ortega as lydia Dietz's daughter in a wedding dress don't know anything more than that but i'm just so happy that we're going to see 
finally a Beetlejuice 2. Hopefully it will be a legacy sequel that lives up to it. Greta Gerwig um, is stepping away from Barbie after this film releases and spearheading a new Netflix franchise of movies based on the Chronicles of Narnia book series. This came as a complete surprise when I read this the other day. Yeah, she set a deal that will see her write and direct at least two of the movies based on the books, but it's not clear which books that she's going to gravitate towards. And it's uncertain whether this will be a continuation of the three prior films that began with 2005's Disney epic The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, followed by Prince Caspian and The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, or a complete new adaptation from, from scratch. There has been an adaptation of the follow-up to The Dawn Treader, The Silver Chair, long rumoured but never confirmed. Netflix took over the franchise in 2018, announcing plans to team up with the C.S. Lewis company in a multi-year deal to produce series and movies based on the books. A year later, Coco writer Matthew Ulrich boarded the franchise as creative architect to oversee all development moving forward. And Gerwig was first linked back in November last year, but has been occupied, obviously, with Barbie for some time now. Now she's ready to go over to Narnia. Yeah, I, I'm interested in this. Um, I think we both kind of agreed with the movies that they were just kind of okay. Yeah, I think a franchise of series and movies on a streaming service will give it more chance to be closer to the books and more creative than what the film versions were. We'll wait and see. Interesting set of hands to, to lead that project, certainly. The Coen brothers, after working solo on a few projects, are apparently going to re-team for another film. Ah, that's good to know. It's been five years since they last teamed up, but Ethan has now revealed that the pair are potentially ready to reunite for a project that could take priority over a planned drive-away dolls follow-up um, that Ethan has been working on. According to Slashfilm, Cohen himself confirmed the reunion in the July issue of Empire, where he reportedly said he was developing a new project with Joel, but wasn't forthcoming on any details. Reports earlier this year suggested it might be a detective mystery based on Ross MacDonald's 1962 novel, The Zebra Striped Hearse, which follows a private eye character, Lou Archer. Uh, that report suggested an already completed screenplay, but hasn't had any confirmation. But let's just wait and see, because... You know, the, the Coens, since they went off and did their own projects, they've both done interesting things, but I don't think they've quite got that creative spark that they have when they work together. I've got to agree. I thought, I thought whatever the combination of the two brothers brings, that was sincerely lacking in each of their, their other projects. And also the fact that they're talking about doing something with Lou Archer, which Archer, which starred Paul Newman, is one of my favourite private detective movies uh, a genre all on its own that kind of private detective film but Archer's fantastic purge six apparently there's a finished script for the sixth film in the purge franchise and it will see the return of frank grillo's leo barnes character from the second and third films however it's currently stuck in limbo due to budgetary concerns and bear in mind that the purge films have never really cost a huge amount it makes you wonder how much they're planning for the budget for this one for those who've followed the Purge franchise, you'll know that it took a detour after the third film. The fourth one served as a prequel, showing the first Purge in action. And the fifth one then jumped ahead eight years after the third film, with the new founding fathers of America having finally gained control of the government, reinstating the Purge. You didn't like that one, and I did. It didn't have the energy that it thought it had for me. I liked the idea of it, but I didn't like how it was represented. But I'll still be back on board for the sixth film because I do think there's always something nice to explore in the Purge things. In a new in interview with The Playlist, James DeMonaco has said that the film is in a state of limbo due to budget 
I wrote the script, Universal's seen it. There are concerns about budget, but it definitely presents a fractured America. The America I present in Purge 6 is where we're all separated by ideology and sexual preference. So the states are broken down in different ways. It's written, it's in Universal's hands. They're scared about the budget, but my thing was, if I was going to come back and direct a sixth one, it was going to be something bigger and a little more epic in scope. With this new America, I want to present and bringing back Frank Grillo's character, so it's kind of in limbo. What I've always, what I've always liked about the Purge films is, is um, they're, they're kind of an anthology series set around mm. this world, and that each film should be slightly different and not repeat or just be a direct sequel every time. I've, 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 yeah. I think that's an admirable approach. They, they tell interesting political and sociological messages within each one. I'll wait and see how this one pans out, see whether we get it. I reckon we'll get it for next year. What else you got? And the last bit of news is just that production has wrapped on two upcoming sequels that I am looking forward to of franchises that have been with me for most of my life. First up, Fede Alvarez's new Alien film has finished filming. We can't wait. I'm not, you know, it's one of those films that we've not seen any no. behind-the-scene production shots of at all. Yep, we don't know any story details about the film. All that we know is the cast includes Kaylee Spaney, Isabella Marced, and David Johnson. And it's said to be a standalone installment that isn't connected to Prometheus, Alien Covenant's narrative, or the four original films. And it's entirely separate from Noah Hawley's TV series. And meanwhile... Ernie Hudson has confirmed to Screen Rant that the sequel to Ghostbusters Afterlife is a fin officially finished filming. Hudson is reprising his role as Winston Zeddemore in the new New York set film. Whilst it's finished and whilst it's in the can, I know that they've been saying that it's uh, due out in December, but Ernie Hudson doesn't seem com completely convinced and has kind of said, you know what, it might come out a bit later. It's not going to make a Christmas release. No. No chance. It'll be March next year, I reckon, at the earliest. We'll wait and see. I've, I've got some love for Afterlife. Yeah. And that, folks, that's the news. If you haven't started, then you should subscribe to The Film File. Those lovely chaps. I know them personally, and, and I can say they are really, really nice people. Uh, I've never you met should, them. I, you, you should. <laughs> they live on a different strand of the multiverse than us. Check out The Film File podcast if you haven't already done so. If this is your first show, then subscribe via your favorite podcast platform. Remember to leave a like and leave a review and get in touch with us. Yeah, get in touch with us about any old film or geek nonsense. We'll be happy to respond. For instance, who was in that film? What was the name of that film? Casting Rumours. What is film? <laughs> <laughs> That's a really existential question. We could just spend a complete hour and a half on that one, Andy. So drop us a line. You can reach us on all the socials. Yeah, just head over to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Mastodon, and Threads. Search for Film File UK. There we are. Get in touch. Or drop us an email, podcast at filmfile.uk. And now it's time for this week's Deep Dive. Dive, dive, dive. Last week, we reviewed James Mangold's Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. But this week, we thought we'd stick with James Mangold and talk about another character who has to deal with the end of his run. Yes, we're talking about Logan. As I live and breathe, the Wolverine, I need the girl, Buckara. And we're down. She's like you, very much like you. No, no. This is what life looks like. Take a moment. 
feel it. We still have time. Logan came out in 2017 and, of course, starred Hugh Jackman as the character Wolverine, a.k.a. Logan, in the third and final installment. Uh, I'm going to use the term Wolverine trilogy lightly because mm -hmm. I don't think it was ever intended to be a trilogy. It started off with the much derided and, and rightly so X-Men Origins Wolverine, uh, followed by the much improved The Wolverine in 2013 and this, which was a take. Well, it was inspired by the Old Man Logan comic series uh, by Mark Millar and Steve McNiven, which followed the adventures of an aged Wolverine. This film takes that as a starting point. It's set in the near future with only sort of slight technological updates and deals with the now powerless Wolverine and an extremely ill Charles Xavier. Directed by James Mangold, who also co-wrote the screenplay with Michael Green and Scott Frank, this has been seen as the classic interpretation of the character. And in many ways, and alluded to in the film, inspired by the film Shane. Mm. Did incredibly well, brought closure to the Logan film series, and is the strongest out of all the Wolverine movies. Andy, do you have much love for this? Yes, uh, I rewatched this over the past couple of weeks, and every time that I revisit this, it reminds me of everything that I love about it. I remember when it first came out at the cinemas, I, I went into it with trepidation because even though the Wolverine was better than X-Men Origins was, it still had a lot of faults. It wasn't the Logan that we've always wanted to see on screen. No. Um, it, it got a lot closer. It was inspired by the Frank Miller, Chris Claremont run. But this saw us, within the first few minutes of the film, this saw us a much more brutal Wolverine than we'd seen previously. But as it came closer towards this one getting released and the trailer campaign started, I started to be turned around. Maybe James Mangold would tap into it correctly. And I remember the first trailer having the um, Johnny Cash version of Hurt playing yes, over right. the and I, I was just like, well, that set the kind of tone for it. And watching the film, and right from the start, we see what we've been clamoring for from Wolverine on film for so long. Absolutely visceral, bloody, brutal combat. He's slicing, he's dicing, and he's swearing. Yet, he's also struggling. And what I love about this film is that it's not an exploration of the character of Wolverine. It's an exploration of the man, Logan now that he's no longer able to be the hero he's just trying to be a man in his declining years and taking care of the rather critically unwell professor x charles xavier again played by patrick stewart and what what's good is that all that we know is that in recent history set before this film something's happened that has basically diseased a load of mutants everyone's starting to lose their powers or have been killed. We don't know whether any of the original X-Men are surviving. We're suggested that Charles had one of his brain explosions and unfortunately destroyed him. But none of that is important because what's important is here's a man who is basically at the end of his life. He's got all his regrets for his very long life. He can finally look forward to eventually being able to die as his own body starting to poison himself. And then he finds a new reason to live. And that comes in the form of Lara, who is basically a younger version of Logan. She has claws, she has the temper. And what begins this road journey is the relationship between the two of them. Unlike any great road trip, they initially don't see eye to eye and are brought together through the film. Uh, we get to see a very telling performance from Hugh Jackman and 
let's not neglect to say uh, an incredibly powerful performance from Patrick Stewart mm. as Professor Hex, Charles Xavier, who's now suffering from dementia that caused him to have destructive telepathic seizures, uh, which is, as Andy says, is, has injured several hundred people and apparently or may, may or not have killed several of the X-Men years prior. This is a film which is a, a very dark journey, not your typical superhero fare. It's it's a lot grittier than any of the previous X-Men films, which clearly didn't have an impact on the box office because it was the third highest grossing R-rated film of that year. And it was also an, a nominated for an Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay, becoming the first live-action superhero to be nominated for screenwriting. This is a powerful film in many ways, as I mentioned earlier. It references shame and it does something very, very different with the genre. Yes, we do get to the one-on-one -on -one in the last act, but we've built to that. This isn't an action mm. film. There are scenes of action and we get to see uh, Logan in his berserker rage, which again, for many comic fans, they've waited a long time to see him do that. But it's a much more introspective take on the superhero genre. Special mention must be said for Daphne Keane in her first starring role as Laura X-23 in this. Because when they were casting, they wanted to cast someone who could be bilingual, but didn't, didn't need to say much, but could express things through just mannerisms and like when she does speak she's full of anger and rage and she's marvelous she's funny as well the scenes when she's eating her cereal as like the marauders uh trying to come and take her and she's just casually just finishing eating her cereal and then strikes out goes from like almost comical to full-on brutality quite swiftly apparently i uh, reading from behind like stuff behind the scenes they had to keep doing reshoots of the scenes when she's attacking people because she was having too much fun and um, she was smiling and laughing a lot of the time and they were like no you're supposed to be really angry and serious but what a great young actress i mean she's gone on to other things since i mean i, I love her in the tv series of um his dark materials that finished its run this past year but she showed so much early potential with such a powerful role if this had been cast wrong if she had been cast completely incorrect everything would have fallen apart around it because her character is critical to the heart the drive and the emotion and the reason why logan goes on one last adventure it, it's a gritty film unapologetically so and uncompromising in the way that it portrays characters at the end of their story for want of a better term um it's i think hugh jackman's best performance in the role uh, even though when he first appeared in the Brian Singer film way back in 2000, he made such an impact uh, as Wolverine that now you always see or you hear his voice anytime you, you read the comics and, and you, th you think of Wolverine, you, you connect it to Hugh Jackman. But uh, I think he gives um, he gives the same kind of nuanced performance that Clint Eastwood did in The Unforgiven. Somebody who's carrying the the weight of violence on their shoulders uh, and just trying not to do better things because when he's when he goes on this quest that's when he's there to do something better for everyone i think it's it's one of the great superhero movies and i think it's one of the great road movie films as well I, I, there's was a lot of strong critical acclaim for this film and deservedly so at the time that this came out the x franchise was looking to be in a desperate state i mean we just had X-Men Apocalypse, which was underwhelming, critically mauled, and um, underperformed at the box office. So having this film that it kind of sidestepped around the X-Franchise itself, it was deliberately set tw in 2029, so it was ahead 
of where it was in an alternate future. But it, it allowed the freedom of not having to draw too many connections to what was happening with the main franchise at the time. Keeping the budget relatively low, I think it cost between 90 to 120 million, allowed creative freedom from Mangold without studio interference. And that was that's the secret to the yeah. success of it, is that there's no studio, there's no whiff in this of studio interference. Like you said, like towards the end, it gets into the one-on-one fight as like there's another another mutated creation attacking them. But it feels that it earns it as part of the story. It doesn't feel like it's been shoehorned in to just go bit of action. It feels like that's the natural development for it. This, watching it this week, it was an absolute joy to go back and rewatch. Stephen Merchant in there, completely forgot he was yeah, in Yeah, uh, Richard E. Grant as well. The yeah. much underrated and, and, and appeared later in uh, Mangold's last film, Boyd Holbrook, who I think is, I think that was the first time that I remember seeing him. And again, makes a, makes a great impression on the screen. Yeah, it's, it's a fantastic film. It's a heartfelt film. Uh, and it moves away from what the X-Men were becoming. I think the last great X-Men film, and, and it was a great X-Men film, was Days of Future Past. Um, but after that, it just became all about the spectacle and less about the plot. This is all about the plot and the characters. And as Andy said, everything that happens is earned in this. And um, it is a in the same way that Dark Knight was, was groundbreaking. This, this follows suit. This is an intense film and well worth watching. Um, if you want to see Logan, Andy, where can we find it? As with all the X titles, Logan is available on Disney Plus in the UK. So log on to there, get it watched. They haven't got the um, the black and chrome edition, is it? Yeah, I, I Mangold released a noir version of this. Uh, uh, he knew it wouldn't work as a um, as a theatrical run, but he has put together that the, the film was, even though it was shot in, in colour, he had an awareness that it would play as well, if not better, as a black and white film. So the film was regraded uh, and time shot by shot for the noir edition. And this version is included on the digital HD release and also included in the DVD and Blu-ray combo pack. But no, it's not on any of the streaming services. Yeah, so if you want to see that Chrome edition, you'll need to purchase it. But yeah, Disney Plus, get it watched. If you've never watched Logan, I don't even think you need to watch the rest of the X-Men films to just jump in and appreciate this, basically a Western in the X-Universe. Yep, totally agree. We'll be back next week with another deep dive. And now it's time for this week's reviews and a film that Andy and I have seen together. We're going to be talking about Pixar's Elementals. But before that, Andy, tell us a little bit about Insidious, the Red Door. It's not the house that's haunted, it's your son. Our family has been through a lot together, but I can still feel something following us. There's so much you don't know. I was too scared to tell you the truth. For his first directorial venture, Patrick Wilson has opted to return to the Insidious franchise, which he starred in the first two chapters of in 2010 and 2013 as Josh Lambert. Picking up the story of Josh and Dalton, Ty Simpkins also reprising his role, the father and son who had the gift to enter the further, which put the pair in peril nine years earlier. The duo have since had their memories of those events wiped through hypnotism and their lives have moved on. Dalton is off to college, but his relationship with his father has been strained in the years since after Josh had separated from his wife, Renee, 
played by Rose Byrne, making Josh an absent father figure in Dalton's life. However, when Dalton's art class tutor encourages the students to tap into their darkest inner self, it unfortunately opens the red door once more, and soon Josh and Dalton both begin to experience dark entities in their presence as the old demons start to return. This is pretty much a retread of ideas and moments that we've already glimpsed in the first two films, and it sadly doesn't really do anything to bring any closure to the story of the Dalton family, nor add anything fresh to their plight. It's just recycled ideas given new but overly familiar shape. However, what this film does showcase well is the direction of Wilson, who, whilst it could be said is playing safe with characters and ideas he's well acquainted with, utilises some skilled techniques in presenting the offence well, and gets some solid performances out of his cast. Wilson and Simpkins' fractured relationship as father and son feels natural and filled with abandonment issue fueled rage, but always with that family bond hinted at that can never truly be broken. The opening shot of a crucifix gravestone upside down as the camera rotates through 180 degrees to then show the funeral taking place impressed me with the symbolism and the grace in which it was employed. Shadows and blurred presences draw attention in the background throughout, whilst importantly, moments play out in the foreground, ensuring that you are constantly on the watch for something out of place. Even the jump scares are chillingly presented, even if they do feel a tad signposted at times. Wilson it is safe to say, has some talent as a director. But sadly, despite the technical skill that is on display, the end result just feels too familiar and unnecessary. This is a film that I respect more than I enjoy. Insidious the Red Door serves purely as a showcase for Wilson's branching off into directing. I thought the first film was great. I really did. I thought it was a fresh horror film. Uh, and I thought James Wan did that very clever thing with with horror. He made he made the negative space in the frame feel terrifying mm. because there was always something slightly off center, slightly in the background, which would come up and frighten you. And a lot of sort of very, very interesting in camera effects. I thought the franchise should have ended there because it became a franchise. I thought the second one was uh, was kind of back to the future too. I, I didn't bother after that, and, and by the sounds of it, I, I don't think I'll be in for seeing the, this new entry. Uh, tell us about The Outlaws, because I'm, I, I don't recognise this one, Andy. My parents just emailed that they're coming to our wedding. Oh, I get to meet your parents, finally! Are you psyched? You're not psyched. Are you psyched at all? Is there any psyched happening? Sitting on top of the world, I'm up. You haven't met this woman parents yet? They've been off the grid the whole time we've been together. What's going down? Baby, what's up? Billy and Lily McDermott meet my parents. Pleasure to meet you, Neil. You're very attractive. Oh, thank you. That's not a compliment. For me, it's too much. You deserve something better than that pasty little goober. Dad, just give him a chance. Well, what does a bank manager do? I manage all the security. It's the best. Let's just pray we have a nice, chill day. This is a robbery! I think your parents robbed my bank. You can't be serious. They knew the voice activation code to get in the vault, which I'm pretty sure I told your mom about when I was wasted. She left me roses by the stairs. Thank you for your cooperation, Owen. Adam Devine plays Owen, a straight-laced and somewhat nerdy bank manager who is set to marry the love of his life, Parker, played by Nina Dobrev. However, when his bank is held up by the notorious ghost bandits, he becomes convinced that the masked robbers were actually his future in-laws, Billy and Lily, played by Pierce Brosnan and Ellen Barkin, who showed up in town just prior to the robbery taking place. 
Your enjoyment of this film will boil down to one thing. Can you cope with 95 minutes of Adam Devine playing the typical lovable nerd that he has played in pretty much everything else? Now, I'm quite a fan of Devine's usual shtick in the various support roles he's been in over the years, and you generally know what to expect from his awkward charm. However, what works in a support role can get a little too tiresome when pushed to the forefront. And after the first hour passed, the character of Owen was starting to grate a little, sadly to the detriment of the whole. And when the rest is pretty much derivative material, that's not a lot. There was some fun to be had, and there were a few genuine laugh out loud moments. Any time that Owen's parents were on screen, played by the wonderful Richard Kind and Julie Haggerty, smiles were guaranteed. That pair are perfect in their straight and serious delivery of even the most crazy of lines of dialogue, especially Haggerty, who has always channeled deadpan comedy delivery since the days of Airplane. Brosnan and Barkin are fun as the in-laws, and there's even a chucklesome reference to Bond that, yes, felt quite forced, but damn if it didn't raise a giggle. The film isn't over long, but it feels too familiar to last the whole runtime. Devine is still charmingly awkward, but almost to the point of annoyance, leaving this to just be typical disposable Netflix fare. I've got to be honest, Andy, Outlaws has not won me over. But what did win me over is our next film. And it's great to see them back on the big screen after they'd been, well, shall we say, thrown to Disney Plus. Relegated. Uh, yeah, relegated to the point of where it started to feel a little bit suspicious. Anyway, Pixar are back with their new release, Elemental. In Element City, there's air, earth, hey. water, and fire. But we don't mix. Something is happening in Element City. This is our home. We have to fix this. Now, unlikely friends will become unexpected heroes. Hop on! Watch out! Looks like I'm going home early today. Disney and Pixar's Elemental. So we know that Pixar as a studio have always tried to push the envelope. And in this particular film, um, I think they've doing well. They've tackled romance. I don't think they've ever really gone out and made a romantic comedy. So set in a world where all the elementals exist, Ember, who is made of fire, meets Wade, who is made of water. In a chance meeting that threatens to shut down Ember's father's store, they team up to work together to save Ember's family business. But along the way, find out whether the elements can't mix. Now, uh, we walked, both walked out of this and we both said we thoroughly love it. Let's talk about the main thing about a Pixar movie is that it's absolutely beautiful. The uh, uh, Element City is just a, a thing of beauty. The, the colour schemes, the design is, is awe-inspiring. There are some, some neat little puns that run out throughout the entire film. And with everything that Pixar do, they they can they make films for children that the child inside all of us can watch. I had a, a, a more issues with this than you did, and that was for a long time. This film didn't know what it wanted to be for me to to finally get to it. Was it some kind of uh, uh, romantic comedy, which is it, it turns up? Is it a coming of age story? Is it uh, is there some sort of conspiracy within Elemental City? But by the end of it, that didn't matter because once all the threads of this story come together and what the film is really, really about, that's when it won me over. So it, it did take its time. And I certainly spent the first half of, of the film trying to figure out what this film is. But the chemistry 
between the two characters, no pun intended, just just comes alive. It really sparks. That's what works about this film. So much so, I know you're going to mention it, but we both had we both had something in our eyes. I, th- I think I had dust in my eyes by the end of it. Yeah, um, as the end credits came up, I turned to Lee with tears running down my cheeks. Just went, I'm not crying, you're crying. It really hit me fully in the feels in that way that Pixar magically managed to do. Every time I watch a Pixar film on the big screen, I get to a point where I can feel myself starting to break. And I'm just sat there thinking, don't say something to break me. Don't say something. And then there'll be one line of dialogue from it that's just like, boom, that's it. Floodgates open. And this was so charming. I can get what you're saying about this, the, the first half you had problems with. It's This is a film, and I've seen other people comment on this, that it throws a lot of ideas into the mix. There's a, there's a look at immigration. There's a look at cultural identity, family tradition. There's commitments to uh, your family at the expense of your own personal life. There's cultural ghetto communities. There's racism. There's a lot of heavy topics in that first half that it kind of dips into and doesn't quite know which ones it's going to explore and follow through until you realise that the the actual story is the love across divides, yeah. the Romeo and Juliet, more or less. And that's when it's like, you know what? I'm locked into these characters. All of this other stuff, all of this cultural stuff, all of this, like the the, the slums area that they're living in that hasn't been like looked after, etc., is just to put you into the mindset of those individuals so that you fall in love with Wade and Ember as they're falling in love with each other. And boy, they, they you've said about the animation is so packed with detail. Yeah. yeah, there's so much, so many levels upon levels upon levels of detail. But then it's some of the simple things that they do that is so effective. There's one shot in this film that when I watched it, I just went, that's Pixar magic. And Ember, when she gets angrier, she gets more purple and fiery. When she gets a bit subdued and a bit melancholic, her flame subsides. And there's a marvellous scene on the beach when she's talking with Wade and she's talking about her, like how, how she feels that she needs to stick with tradition with her family and, you know, respect her father's wishes and inherit this, but her flame is going out, but you don't see her directly. You see her through the image of her reflected in his watery shell, basically. And that it's just a beautiful shot because you're seeing his reaction at the same time as her telling it all told within the one layer. It was beautiful. And that was the point that I went, I love this film. I absolutely love this film. I know I've talked about its inconsistencies, and and yes, there are a few, but I I can't take away from the fact that Elementals is is a great romantic drama in a way that Pixar haven't made this kind of film before. It does follow the tropes of romantic comedies, but it does them well and knowingly and, and plays it masterfully with some absolutely beautiful animation. And we've also, we have to mention the short that is in the front of Elemental, which was just absolutely perfect. Uh, and that's the thing, when you go and see a Pixar movie, they they, they do put their little shorts on at the, at the beginning of the run. Uh, but this features Carl from Up and Dog, and it just made us both, ah, oh, this is what cinema's all about. It was just just purely, purely lovable. Um, I, I said I enjoyed it so much, it was gonna be my neat thing, but. Uh, I have another neat thing. So we just have to highly recommend that, don't we? Yeah, it was it was intended to be one of the Doug Days animations on Disney+. Plus, and if you've not seen them, I do recommend them because they're all filled with that same charm. But they've held this one over to go before this film as a tribute to Ed Asner, who passed away last year. And it's a beautiful final tribute to him, basically. Um, it's full of charm. 
It's full of heart and it's full of proper belly laughs. It's a 10 minute short that had me chuckling pretty much from the start. Alone, it's worth going yeah. to see Elemental for. To have Elemental then follow that, it's just like, you know what? This is just a double treat. So go and check Elemental out on the big screen. You treat us so much, Pixar. You treat us so well. Remind yourself of what Pixar do so well and why we love them. So that's the reviews for this week. We'll be back, of course, talking about Mission Impossible next week. Um, and I guess I've given the game away, Andy. What can we expect for our entertainment delectation this week? Coming up this week, obviously, cinema's Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Pinocchio, A True Story, the Pauly Shaw-voiced poor Pinocchio film that came out a few years ago internationally. And I don't know why this is getting a cinema release now. Okay. But if if you're not sick and tired of multiple Pinocchio stories, why not check out this notoriously bad one? Um, over on Now TV and Sky, there's on Sky Documentaries, there's an Oppenheimer and the Atomic Bomb documentary that might be worth watching before going to see Oppenheimer. Whereas over on the movie channels, we've got Breaking Point, which sees two rival teen brothers compete to be breakdancing champions which I'm sure this film must have dropped through a time warp from 1985 <laughs> <laughs> to become a Sky original. The, the sequel is going to be called Electric Boogaloo 2, isn't it? <laughs> um, Armageddon Time and The Locksmith also arrive on Now TV and Sky. Netflix, Bird Box Barcelona, yeah, the spin-off to, to Bird Box. And over on Amazon, The Summer I Turned Pretty. And over on Apple TV+, Plus, we both got our eye on this, After Party Season yeah. 2. Sam Richardson, Zoe Chow and Tiffany Haddish join a whole new cast for a new murder told from different perspectives. Can't wait. I guess, folks, that's it for this week. Uh, we'll be back again next week. But before we go, yep, it's time for our neat things. Stuff that we've enjoyed, that we wish to share with you. Whether it be uh, a night out, whether it be a movie, TV series, even a meal. We're going to tell you our neat things and hopefully inspire you. Andy, your neat thing is, and I think I know what your neat thing for this week is. My neat thing this week landed on Apple TV Plus a couple of weeks ago. We're three episodes in. It's airing one episode each week, and it's the most nail-bitingly tense real-time drama that we've had since season one of 24. Yes, it's another series that is set in real time over a situation going on. It's called Hijack. It stars Idris Elba as a man who's just trying to get home to his estranged family when his flight gets hijacked in this gripping, intense real-time series. Set over six episodes, which is the six-hour flight of the plane itself, the drama unfolds slowly on the plane and on land as we follow the investigators in the UK clamouring to find out what's actually happening in the air. Whilst on the plane, the terrorists holding it hostage were forced to initiate their plans too early and seem to not be completely prepared for the strain of holding it hostage for over five hours, resulting in various breakdowns in calmness and threatening situations for all on board. This is so well done. And it reminds me of why I used to love, particularly in its early years, shows like 24, that if you get that real-time drama done well, it just becomes compelling. You become fascinated, not only by like the actual, you know, the story pushing which is going on, but also just the general behavior of characters as they would normally behave in real time before the hijack takes place. You've just got people settling into a plane journey, not liking each other or sometimes wanting to get over talkative with each other. Differences of um, personalities clashing. And then it just breaks out into one of the tense. It's basically been that one of the edge of the seat tensest two and a half episodes since the hijackers took over that I've had in a while. Me and the wife are watching this week on week. 
Can't wait for the next episode because they left it on a right cliffhanger, as you'd expect from this kind of thing. And yeah, Hijack on Apple TV Plus, yet another example of why I keep singing the praises of Apple TV. I've only seen the trailer for this so far, but I, I'm, I'm really, I'm really in on this. And it, you're right, it, I did get a 24 uh, vibe from it. And, and again, we talked about Apple TV that while they don't have a lot of product and what they have has a tendency to be quality. This certainly looked certainly looked quality to me. Um, I'm looking forward to getting this yeah. started. Idris Elba's just got so much screen presence, uh, and and even in the trailer, this shone through. I thought it, I think it looks great. So, um, you, did you say that they're dropping this weekly? Weekly, yeah. So episode four will be landing. Well, episode four will have just landed by the time this show airs, uh, which will mean that we've only got two more hours worth. My neat thing is completely different because we're different people, believe it or not. Last night uh, we record this on a Sunday, and uh, I went to see the Hollywood Vampires at the Manchester Arena. So if you don't know who the Hollywood Vampires were, by all accounts, it was a legendary drinking group uh, from the 60s and 70s. Uh, that was formed by Alice Cooper and the group consisted of people uh, like Harry Nilsson, John Lennon, uh, Mickey Dolenz was in it. And it is the stuff of of legend to be a part of this group. And of course, uh, a lot of the Hollywood vampires have now passed away. Um, so the incarnation that I saw on stage features Joe Perry from Aerosmith, uh, one of the greatest guitarists of all time. Uh, Tommy Henriksen, who plays with the Alice Cooper band. and a little-known actor known as Johnny Depp. Yeah, it's the band that features Johnny Depp. Now, as has been mentioned on this show many times, I'm a huge Alice Cooper fan. I missed the 2018 tour because I was I was on tour in the US at the time. My partner never lets me forget it because I got her tickets and she got to meet both uh, Alice Cooper and Johnny Depp that night. We didn't have as much luck, but I'll I'll pick up on that. What a fantastic show. Um, last time I saw Alice Cooper, it was okay, but um, that sense of over-familiarity played into it, and it, it was a good show, but not a great show. This was a great show, an absolutely rocking show in which myself, my partner, and the child had a fantastic time. There are some original Hollywood vampire songs in the set, but uh, the rest of the set is made up by uh, contributions, cover versions of, uh, of people who have passed away. So every other song is by somebody who is no longer with us. So you get Johnny Depp, for instance, singing David Bowie's Heroes. You get Joe Perry, who is just the coolest looking 70 odd year old ever, uh, singing Johnny Thunders as You Can't Put Your Arms Around a Memory. You get tributes to The Doors. You get tributes to The Who, uh, ACDC. You can see the thread. It's all about people who passed away. We had a thoroughly fantastic evening. It was a late night, uh, made later that we had backstage passes. And while we didn't get to meet the big three, Joe Perry, Johnny Depp and Alice Cooper, we did get to meet Tommy Henriksen, who is the most unknown out of the all Hollywood vampires. But what a lovely guy. And the main thing I have to point out, which makes it my neat thing, he saw us from on stage and he just interacted with the child all the way through, pointing at him, waving at him all the way. And then when we were backstage, uh, he chatted to he chatted to Ruben for a, a good 20 minutes and his photograph taken to him. Uh, showed him photographs on his phone. It was just absolutely delightful and ended what was a great gig and made it into a fantastic evening. So my neat thing, you may still have had a chance to see them because they're, they're appearing in London and they appeared in Birmingham. If you did go, let me know because I had a fantastic evening. 
that's my neat thing, the Hollywood vampires. And that's our evening done. Andy, you've made it to the end of the show, which is uh, <laughs> uh, deserves deserve some kind of standing ovation, I'm, I'm thinking, at this stage. I'm, I'm just going to go and collapse on the couch. You do that. Treat yourself and, uh, to some collapsing. Curl into a ball and, and cry myself into a, into submission. <laughs> I will be posting pictures of Andy crying himself into submission. On... <laughs> no, we won't. No, we won't. Uh, we'll be back again next week. Uh, more news, more reviews. Hopefully we'll be talking about Mission Impossible. Uh, and in the meantime, nature made me a freak. Man made me a weapon. But... I'm going to bring something up that we have I think I'm going to bring something up at the way I feel. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to make for an interesting edit. Third and thankfully final installment in the. I've got a mic down. <laughs> mic mic down, down. Mic down. Logan came out in 2017 and, of course, starred Huge Jackman. Huge Jackman. Huge Jackman. <laughs> Oh, it's huge. It's huge. That's the first time he said that. Massive. <laughs> He's got a huge jackman, I'll tell you. <laughs> but Andy, what else can we expect this week if we choose to accept it? Reviews? Oh, yeah, of course we do the reviews. Oh, I've, only, <laughs> I've done this show before. I've I'm, I'm, I'm got a feeling I'm quite new at this. Um, and now, Andy, it's time. Now, why am I telling you? You know. <laughs> you did find out. You, know, you told me. You did. I have to do my Robert De Niro face for that one.